Awesome. Well, welcome to Satan's Sermons. That is the series that we're going through this summer. And, and it's been a weird series. I, I, I joked with people, and, and kind of kicking it off, it was almost a gimmick. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, that would be hilarious. Satan's Sermons. Like, there's nothing funny about that. But I don't know why I commented about, like, oh, we'll have fun with it. We'll be this, we'll be that, anything else. And, and then as I got into it, and I started studying, and I started praying, it became really heavy, really quick. And, and I realized that God had plans for this series that I probably didn't anticipate, because in some ways, um, Satan's sermons are so sly, which makes me very Dr. Seuss. Uh, Satan's sermons sly. All right, so they're so sly, and they're so subtle, that I, I started to realize that some of the places that I was seeing the information was in my own life. Right, I, I, would, I would look at the Bible, and then I look at my own life, and I'm like, oh, wow, well, I, I believe that, that lie. I, I, I've given in that thinking. Whether it be in the present or whether it be in the past, there's just been times where I've given in the Satan's sermons. And so um, it became much more personal for me, much more confronting for me, and much more weighty. Because when you start to really distill what it is that Satan's up to, it is such a crafty thing because he just little by little wants to undermine that which we say we hold dear. And he doesn't go for the whole bag in one grasp, you know what I mean? It's like he's just moving stones out of the bag one at a time, little by little. He's just transferring our beliefs from one thing to another thing. And if we don't kind of stay aware, pretty soon we're, we're down the path. That's what he wants to do. So in, in, in the first batch of sermons, the first three, uh, if, if you took them down to their core, each one, the first sermon at its core questions... Who God is. Who God is. Right? Is God loving or is God love? And questions who God is. The second sermon he preaches questions what God says. God's word. And the third sermon questions how God saves. And so what Satan does in these sermons is this full-on assault, just going after God. Now, what Satan is not interested in doing is starting a church. He doesn't care if anybody worships him. His goal is not a following like we assume. He is not the antithesis of God, trying to build his own kingdom. He is simply this malice, angry, spiteful destroyer, and he just wants to go down swinging. So, he doesn't own hell, he doesn't fill it up with his own people, he's not ruling and reigning there, none of that. He's just on a, a burn it to the ground mission. And so he questions who God is, questions what God says, questions how God says. And when we look at the statistics among evangelicals in American culture, he's doing a good job. Because we do start to wonder, who is God really? What is the nature of how God loves? Is the Bible really true? Can I take it at face value? Does God say only through Christ or is there other ways? More and more we as evangelicals are just Slowly slipping down the road. I've been in that place of slipping down the road and I had all kinds of great intentions. My heart, I thought, was really right, really sensitive, and really caring, and really tender, and really novel. But, but it's like, it's like you, know, you, gotta, you gotta get this straight. These are, these are sermons that Satan preaches to undermine. So then we go into the second half of the series, these last three messages. I, I want us to understand what he's targeting. Right? In the first half, it's who God is, what God says, how God says. In the second half, he's targeting what God has given to the world. Now, we know that God has given Jesus. That's how God saves. That's how God loves. That's how God speaks. But what God has also given to the world is sitting in this room. God has given the church. The church is the hope of the world. The church is the only institution that will survive anything this world throws at it. It is the guarantee, the reason the church cannot be stopped, the reason the church cannot be destroyed, the reason the church cannot be extinguished from the planet is because God has promised the earth that they have the church. And they bring the truth of God to the world, they bring the love of God to the world, they bring the message of God to the world, they bring all of that. So the church can't be stopped, but what Satan knows he can do is he can dilute the church. Not the whole global church, in fact what he does is really crazy, he'll target a certain area at a certain time, and he'll work that and just kind of, again, take some of the, 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 the passion away, take some of the conviction away, take some of the drive away. He'll dilute that portion, but what happens is the Holy Spirit just ignites another portion of the world while he's doing that. 
Right? So, as Europe was fading, the United States took off spiritually. Now, the United States is getting diluted as a church, but the church of Africa, the church in Asia, is igniting, right? So, the enemy is just kind of always going and trying to dilute and distort and kind of extinguish as much as he can. Little portions, little places, little times. He's always working, but he never really wins. Right? That's just how he does his sermons. He just brings these creeping corruptions to different locations, different times, gen- different generations. And, and, and as I preach today, um, if I was preaching in Africa, it would be a very different sermon. If, if I was preaching in a place where uh, you see revival, uh, the message would be very different. But I'm preaching in the United States, and because we're already questioning who God is, what God says, and how God saves, these last few messages matter for the church in our country, in our culture, in Duval. Matters to us because Satan is up to things to corrupt, to dismantle, to dilute, to downplay, to divide the church. Just what he wants to do. Now, the way he does this is interesting. He uses different tools, right? He has different tools for different tactics, that kind of deal. And, and, and this morning, I want to share with you two. One we sort of looked at already, but I want to revisit it so you understand the tools of the trade. The first tool that Satan loves to use with us as Christians, as evangelicals in particular, is he loves to loosen words. He loves to loosen them like, like lug nuts on a wheel. He doesn't have to completely remove them. He just wants to kind of loosen their meaning a little bit. Just slightly kind of remove the tightening effect so words wobble a bit. Maybe they mean this, maybe they mean that. Maybe it's like this, maybe it's like that. Back in the first sermon we looked at, we noted that, that all words mean things, but not all words mean the same things in the same way. Right? Like turkey, which I got busted on that one. Everybody's like, you forgot the country. I'm like, alright, whatever, right? So, but I got that three strikes and bowling thing going, right? So, yeah. But the, the words mean things, but not all words mean the same things in the same way when used. And, and so he loves to loosen the meaning of words. And he knows why. Words are power. I mean, words communicate ideas that are powerful. Before any country ever went to war with a sword, it formulated its ideas powerfully through words. Before we as a culture went to war for our independence, there were men who used words to say, this is freedom, this is liberty, this is going to bring your, your exile from slavery. Words have power. The marches in D.C. for civil rights were born out of words that have power. Scribbled on toilet paper and smuggled out of a prison so that Martin Luther King Jr. could say, this is what matters. This is freedom. Words are powerful. Satan knows words are powerful. So if he can take words, loosen words, change words, alter words, uh, dilute what words mean, He's God's word. And, and so there's words that God uses words with very specific type intention that he starts to play with. For example, God uses words like love. And for God, that word love has a very distinct meaning. Right? For God, love is commitment and affection. It is such deep commitment. He doesn't merely fall in love with us. He sets his love on us. His love is so committed, he will never break his promise. His love is so committed, he will put himself in our place and die for our offenses, punish himself for our sins, because he is love. Commitment. But it's not commitment apart from affection. He has this unbelievable deep affection, as deep of an emotion of love as you can have, that is God. But he equally has a deep commitment to love. That is the definition of God's love. That's how he sees it. Uh, there's other words that, that mean things to God. Grace means something to God. Grace is the power of transformation. To take somebody who does not deserve something and go in their stead, give himself for them, and in response to that, as they believe, he gives them transforming power. That is grace. Grace that gives and grace that transforms. God takes grace in that way. A word like obedience. When God looks at the word obedience, Obedience gives you freedom. Obedience gives you hope. Obedience is a wonderful word. More like repentance. God has a particular understanding of repentance. 
repentance. He looks at repentance and says, oh man, when you repent, it lifts your guilt, it lifts your shame. There is no word probably more liberating to the soul than the word I repent. Those two words, I repent. Man, uh, we need them. When God gives the faith, when he speaks of faith, he's talking about the certain conviction, a positive belief. Uh, but see, Satan then takes all these words and he he says, how, how can I take these and dilute them in such a way that they don't have the same impact? So he takes the word love, where God says it's commitment and passion. And he says, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to take that. I'm going to kind of flip it and make it passion and commitment. And then I'm going to actually take it to where the commitment is predicated on the passion or the lack thereof. Right? So, so where God says love is unwavering, Satan says, well, what love is is, is romantic. It's something you fall in and out of. Right? You, you marry someone who vows and you promise to love, honor, and cherish. But after like 15, 20 years, it gets tired, right? He's not what you thought he was, and you're not what, you know, she's not what you thought. Everything else, and so you no longer love them. You met this other person, and you really love them. Right? See, he loves to say, that, see, that's love. He, he loves to use the word flippantly, like, I love my kids. And I love that color, and I love this bird. I love the color red. And green. Right? Like, just, I love candy. You know, whatever it is. Like, like we're this one word, and we're giving it all this bandwidth. Right? Because it's that, that dilutes what God is about. Right? Or you think of the words, grace. Right? I mean, like, grace to God is the power to transform. Right? I mean, that's really what grace is. He loves you so much, he gives his grace, sets his love on you, and gives you the power to be transformed. But then Satan takes grace and says, nah, that's really about clemency. It's really kind of this get out of jail free, um, just wave the wand, you're forgiven. I mean, if you're really going to be gracious, you don't ever worry about judgment or consequence or anything like that. It's just purely, you know, no big deal, that's, that's grace. So he waters it down, forgetting that when God talks about grace, God says, Here, here's my grace. Um, I will form my justice and judgment on myself for you to give you grace. Somebody pays. He pays himself for us. That's grace. Satan's version of grace is no pays. Because it's really nice just to wait for one and say grace. So that's what he does. Or he takes a word like obedience, and instead of it being courageous, he says obedience is enslaving. Obedience is shackling. Obedience takes away your freedom to do whatever you want to do. Obedience is kind of a drag. It's a buzzkill. Or faith. Faith is speculation. Faith is luck. Faith is, I hope it all works out. It's not conviction. Right? So these are just all the different things he likes to do with words. He likes to loosen their meaning. So, say all of that because there is a particular word that he really is labored on. It is the word work. Or works. Right? He is labored on this particular word right here. Right? And so, uh, th- th- there's a good works God talks about. Right? You think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you know what? Uh, may everybody see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus used works in a good way. Jesus expected good works of his followers. It's not a bad word. But then Satan gets in the mix and he works with the Pharisees and he creates a bad version of works. Where the works are legalism, works are oppressive, works are earning, and those kinds of things. And what he then does with that is he starts to merge the, the bad definition into the good word. Right? So Christians, after a while, they hear that word works, and you know what our first response is? Works are bad. Right? I mean, I, I've heard Christians say it plenty. You know what I mean? As soon as something happens, you go, oh, that's works, man. You know, like garlic, cross, and they need a werewolf to fight that. You know, like, you know, like works. Works are to be pushed away. Right? Because when I say why works, works, works are off limits. Works are not what Jesus came for. Jesus did not come in any way for works. Satan loves to preach that sermon. Works are bad. Works are wrong. Works are dangerous. And if you're going to be a good evangelical Christian that wants to really reach people for Jesus, you just don't want to emphasize whole lot of works. Right? That is the challenge. And I think the only thing uh, probably equally
completely sinful to the notion that we work to earn God's love and salvation, which is very simple. We do not work to earn God's love and salvation. But the only thing is equally sinful is saying uh, you can earn God's love and salvation through works. The only thing equally sinful is trying to claim that there is no role for works in the life of the Christian. That is just as dangerous and just as broken and just as much a servant of Satan as anything. So, what's he do? He loosens words. So we have to be aware he loosens words. That's his first tool. His second tool is right here with my, my board. And, and, and this tool is different because what he loves in this is extremes. His second tool is to leverage the power of extreme. And so we all have this, this reality of this problem of extreme. For example, uh, let's say you know, there's this side. There's a positive issue, right? And I hold this issue as positive. This is what I want it to be. And I look at the other side, and I go, um, the opposite of that is a negative thing. Right? And, and, and so I, I, in my life, where he wants to take me is in this role. Right? So instead of being centered, he wants me to be over here. Right? He wants me to be on the extreme of something. So whatever it is, right, I am a conservative. They are them, right? Like that, like an extreme, right? Uh, I'm a crude, they're a perv, right? Like that, right? So this is what he did, right? That's how he works. Now here's the trick, right? Uh, what is positive on my extreme for somebody else is negative, right? So they're on this other end. So they're over here, and they're saying, Right? Like that. Right? Whatever it is. See, Satan loves this back and forth. Right? And, and, and so he tries to push everybody to the extremes all the time. It doesn't matter what it is. So it's like, over here, I'm a naturalist. I don't believe in that superstitious religion stuff. And, and so he's great with me over here. As long as there's somebody else over here that says, well, I'm a spiritualist, and all science is stupid. Right? And he pushes it back and forth. He doesn't carry it away. I, I can be over here, and over here, I'm non-religious. Right? He's like, great, I love non-religious. He loves this extreme. You know the other one he loves? I'm very religious. Oh, Satan loves very religious. He loves it. doesn't matter what it is. It does not matter what it is. Because here's the thing. In, in the extreme pushing and pulling that he engages in, he gets what he wants, which is ultimately, I'm proud, you're wrong, I get it, you don't, I solved it, you're an idiot, whatever, it doesn't matter the topic. All that matters is the extreme of the topic. Right? So in our lives, he's always looking to figure out, how can I push them to the extreme? And again, it doesn't matter the topic at all, right? On this side, you can be a drunk, right? You can be like, awesome, be a drunk, I love it. Perfect, be a drunk. He's great. On the pulpit, he's like, oh, no, but also, you can be a dry teetotaler too, as long as you're touching the drunks. It's perfect. It's perfect. As long as you're looking down your nose, as long as you think you're better than, as soon as you forget your standing really relies on the centrality of God and his grace and his purpose and his person, as long as you lose that, you're not here. He doesn't care where you are. He doesn't care. So, so he works in this context of loosening words and driving to extremes. Now, here's what really is. This is where it's Alright, so, if he can do both, if he can leverage both the loosening of words and the extremes, he wants to pit things, right? So what does he pit? He pits... Works against grace. Right? He loves this one. This is one of his favorite. Right? Um, because he looks at the gosh, you know, how do I understand? By works, it's not what God means by works. And by grace, it's not what God means by grace. He works hard to, to loosen the words. Uh, but then he's going to try to drive us in one direction or the other. Right? This is what he wants to do. We call it pendulum swinging, right? Right. And, and, and think about it, generationally, this has been true. So there's been some times uh, where, where the church, Christians, were way over here on this works front, right? And so it's all about what you do and how. 
how you do it. And, and we come across a little condescending at times and say things like, man, I love it when they're over here because they're so arrogant and they judge the world and they, they you know, they, they're like, oh, before the grace of God go on. Right? Like, so, like, he loves that. And in one generation, he, he raises that up. Again, not works as God intends but but works as he begins to define them, right? He takes it to the extreme. But then in another generation, they rise up, usually the kids of parents who are this, right? And those kids go, oh, man, my parents are terrible. No, religion, religion, religion. So what I need, I need this, I need grace. But they don't mean grace again like the way God means grace. They mean this no expectation, kind of do whatever I want to do. Um, hey, I'm all forgiven, whatever grace. Not by divine definition, but by human definition of, I just want to be the opposite of that. So Satan will constantly take the church and just move it to the extreme. One generation, it's works. Next generation, it's grace. Right? Just saying, just keep them moving. Keep them extreme and keep them changing the definition. Right? So, here's kind of what this then means. Right? Uh, in our current climate, we're kind of see the shift. I think since I've been a pastor, I've watched the shift transpire. Um, and so it started over here with works. And by works, what it meant was legalism. Right? So uh, there you go. Works are legalism. That is his sermon. That's been his sermon for a while. Right? Maybe 20 years, roughly in there. Maybe a little less than that. He keeps just pushing it. Works are legalism. And, 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 and so we've been sort of categorized as evangelicals into this batch. Now, let me show you how we did this. This is brilliant. Um, now, and the other thing is it's going to switch and switch back. It just always does. That's the weirdest part. Uh, but, but here's how this has happened, right? Uh, so we started in, in the last 20 years or so. You could even say as far back as 30. We started getting really aggressive about reaching lost people where they're at. We realized that the culture shifted. The hippies came in and got crazy. And thank you. Uh, you know, and change kind of the religious topography in the United States. So, so churches said, we've got to be more savvy. We've got to figure out how do you reach lost people. And so we started asking lost people the best question any Christian can ever ask. What do you really think of us? Right? Uh, how do you see us? How do you interpret us? How do you feel about us? What is your list of things as far as how you see us? So they gave us the list. Here's the list. Let's go ahead and bring that next slide up. There it is. We are holy rollers, Bible thumpers, born again, or hypocritical, narrow, sheltered, repressive, judgmental, irrelevant, misogynistic, homophobic, anti-scientific, buzz-killing, your That's good. <laughs> right? I mean, that was kind of the list. By the way, that is uh, a copyright for one. Um, so, that was sort of the list, right? Uh, there was books written, many books written, about here's how the world sees the church. Here's how the world sees evangelical Christians. We are all of these things. Right? There's the laundry list. And, and the idea is because we're works oriented. We're all about what we do. We're all about lacking the finger. And so we're these things. Now, now here's the thing about this list. I have to be honest. Um, I don't know too many people that are that list. I mean, I've been running around the church for a while, and I'll meet one here or there. I'll hear bizarre weirdos they throw on the news. That's why they throw them on the news. Um, it's like, let's get the most crazy person to have them represent evangelicalism. Perfect. Right? Most evangelicals, I, this is not really the list I know of evangelicals, kind of by and large. It's not the list, but that was sort of the list given to us. And so we said, wow, that's our list. We must be very works-oriented. We're legalists. And that's how we interpreted the list. They said they see us as being this, and we must be legalists. Now, when you take a list like this, you can take a list and do one of three things. You can take a list and arrogantly say, none of that is true, that's not true. You don't even evaluate it. That's arrogance. Another thing is you can wholeheartedly accept the list. That must be us 100%. We do all of those. Or the third, a crazy, reasonable idea, would be to line item veto the list. All right? So... You can look at the list and say, all right, well, let's see. Uh, two questions. First of all, are we holy rollers? And second question, does God say holy rolling is rolling? 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 I'll research that later. Um, does God say being a holy roller is good or bad? Right? So first question, are we holy rollers? Second question, does God say that's good or bad? See, that should be the response. The response should be, we look at each one of those things, we go, by the numbers, 
Are we Bible thumpers? Question A. Question B, is Bible thumping a good thing? I guess if you're getting somebody physically in your Bible, no, that's not a good thing. <laughs> if by it means we love the Bible, believe the Bible, trust the Bible, and share the Bible, that's a good thing. Uh, if we roll in a holy way, is that bad or good? Uh, well, not as holy. Sounds like it's probably pretty good. Um, you can be arrogant and proud about it, and that's not like that. Right? So you just start to look at each one of those things. Born again, I mock the born again, forgetting that Jesus said, unless you're born again, you're going to hell. Uh, so, didn't do any good to mock the born again. Narrow, we narrow. No, Jesus said it's a narrow way. So narrow isn't always bad, but narrow can be bad sometimes. Right? We get the feel for the list. Right? So some of these can be problems. Some of these may not be problems. Some of these may be mischaracterizations of what we really think and really believe that the world just assumes is our take when it's really not our take. We just haven't explained it. But what happened, and where publishers were nuts in the last 10 years, is they started publishing all about the list. This is what Christians are. It's how we're seen. And the solution was just to run. Whoa, as much as we can. Over here. Right? How do we divorce ourselves from the label of legalistic works? And we ran. So that we didn't look like we were anti-scientific. That we didn't look like we were homophobic. That we didn't look like we were misogynistic. That we didn't look like we were irrelevant. Instead of asking the deeper questions, what does this mean? How does it understood? What does God say? How can we maybe better articulate it? There was a quest to run. Because we just didn't want the label of legalistic works. We wanted the label of loving, receiving, gracious, you know, forgiving, just that whole vibe. Right? And again, I, the, the motivation was sincere. Right? It was completely sincere. You know, we're going, oh, how do you reach people where they're at? And how do you love them where they're at? That is right. That is good. That is healthy. That is biblical. But not at the cost of saying, well, I just got to run from the list. I want to do as much as I can to not look like any of that. So even anything that's in between, even something that may be true, I'm just going to distance myself so I look more receivable. So I can be welcomed in the loving arms of those who don't even believe in my God. So I can maybe get an opportunity to share a convictionless gospel and make it cool enough that everybody wants it. I've said that before. We just cannot make the gospel cool for everybody to say, oh, well, here's how it starts. God loves you. You're awesome. The other day, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. That doesn't swallow well. Right? Right? So much so that I just don't want to do that. I want to tell people about Jesus, but I don't want to say anything about hell. I want to share with people how they can have life, but I don't want to mention about their sin. All of that is, is the flight to this. Right? And, and I'm guilty. I'm not wagging a finger. I'm guilty. Like I said, the hardest part of this whole series is I'm looking at myself in the mirror half the time going, done it, done it, done it, done it. I will give them my letter of resignation tomorrow because you know, like, I am not. I'm not worthy. Right? That's, that's been the problem. That's been the polarization that he's engaged in. Right? And so now, Now, with this list, What's interesting is one of the things we're judged on may have some real merit. The hypocritical thing. Right? Why would it have merit? Well, because hypocrisy at its core is what? You hold certain values, and when you don't live those values, when you don't obey those values, when you don't uphold those values, you are a hypocrite. Right? So the unbelieving world, aside from all the other lists, says, well, you're hypocrites. I'm like, well, let me get this straight. So either you don't like me for my rules or you don't like me for not keeping my rules. I don't understand and I'm confused. Right? Well, it, it is the problem. Sometimes we run so far this way to get away from looking like we keep the rules to be kind of more real, more adaptive. Um, that the consequence of that, they look at it and go, then does this mean anything? I mean, if you're going to have convictions, have convictions. If you're going to have beliefs, have beliefs. If you're going to say the Bible is the word God, you look by the Bible. But if you're going to do that, then you're a hypocrite. And I don't know what you're pushing on. Right? Because in this whole quest, this whole drive back and forth, from that to this, um, it was weird. That it, from a church marketing perspective, even, it, it, it turned into this, like, how, how can we be hipper and cooler for a lost world? We started almost like going so far as to say, you know what? Uh, we're just like you. We're Christian. 
You know what I mean? Like, like, nah, that doesn't work, man. So then they said, well, now you're hypocritical. Right? In fact, it was really interesting. A couple of weeks ago, we, we, we had the sermon on hell. And, uh, you know, we certainly have people that come to Redemption Church that do not confess Jesus. They're just checking it out, seeing what Jesus is all about. And uh, so it's talking to an individual that says, all right, so I got it. I, I think I did hell. That made sense to me. That made real sense. And so I'm paying attention. I'm listening. I was ripped. He goes, now here's my problem. He goes, when are you going to go and do the next message where you, and this is literally like after cleaning it up, but he goes, when are you going to do the next message where you follow those a-hole hypocrites sitting in your church that their get-out-of-jail-free card doesn't wash with a guy like me? And it was funny because somebody was standing behind me. He's right in the front door. And somebody was standing behind me like, Duh! you know, like, like, you know, like, oh, it's awesome. You know what I mean? And, and it was interesting. He goes, because they're sitting in your church. You know what I mean? And I said, well, that's in two weeks. So, um, and I get what he's saying, right? And, and again, I, I think we're sometimes called hypocrites, and that's not the right thing. I think sometimes we're called hypocrites because we're judgmental. That's probably a fair thing. But I think we're also called hypocrites because, again, we want to postulate a standard that, that we sometimes actively choose not to live up to. I get that we're all going to be frail and we're incomplete people and we seek a perfect God. But, but there are times where we just go, I don't care enough. I don't care. And besides, I don't want to want to look like that over there. I want to look more like this over here. I, I, I fit in better if I, I, I kind of leverage Satan's version of grace and believe in his version of works versus God's version of grace and God's version of works. Right? That, that's the tension that gets created for us. And so Satan just kind of preaches this message. That's right. That's right. Works. Works for legalism. He goes as far as obedience is legalism. Physical living is legalism. Uh, just live over here in this kind of uh, non-intrusive, non-transformational grace. And he does. That's what he does. So let's see if we can clean up the mess a little bit then. Let's try to see if we can define some things a little bit. The first thing I want to define is what legalism is not. What legalism is not. Because this is part of what it comes down to, right? This is where we were, over here, allegedly, or not allegedly, or any particular season in the history of the church. We've been over here, and the accusation of works and legalism comes together. So what is legalism exactly? Three definitions, right? They're, they're, they're related, but they're different. So three definitions of legalism. The first is this. Legalism are rules not found in the Bible. Right? Real simple. Legalism rules not found in the Bible. So when Jesus is like kind of kicking it with the Pharisees and getting on their case and everything else, why? Because they were creating thousands of rules out of the Bible. It didn't matter what it was. They were just coming up with rules all over the place, right? And Jesus is looking at those rules and he's saying, you guys are legalists. These are bad works. These are works of the devil, he says to Johnny. Your works are works of the devil because they're not the rules that God gave. They're extra rules that you made up just because you felt like it. And, and so that's their legalism. Today in the church, for the last hundred years, we've had the same thing. If you're of an older generation, I was real simple. You don't play cards. No, no, no. No, that's sin. You don't go to dance. That's sin. You don't gamble. Oh, sin. All right? All those things. When I was training to be a pastor in the church I was in, we had a very simple legalistic rule. You don't go to our river. Unless it was passion of Christ, and it's okay. Um, so, <laughs> but you God, Jesus. Right? So, like, you just don't go to our right movies. Good Christian people, they don't go to our right movies. Right? Those are legalistic things. We're, we're just making up rules as we go. Because, well, it kind of helps. It's an application. And it's an application that comes with rules. Churches have other legalistic standards they don't even mean to have. Like, for example, uh, you can be a good Christian and come to church, but you're a great Christian. Right? Right? So so here's how we define true commitment and spirituality. Right? Those are just us creating rules that the Bible doesn't advocate. That's legalism. That's the first definition of legalism. The second definition of legalism is attitudes that are contrary to God's intentions. Right? So maybe God really commanded something, so the command itself isn't legalism, but the attitude behind it is very much a legalistic attitude. Right? So if God says, you know, whatever it is, do not commit adultery, it's saying it like a church lady. Do not commit adultery, you're saying it. Right? Like that attitude. 
is the legalistic attitude behind a real commandment. So the commandment is right, the attitude's wrong, that makes it legalism. Our pride could be legalism, even if the command is true. And then the third form of legalism, the one we're probably most familiar with, it's the belief that works or works earn God's love or salvation. In other words, little lowercase works is the stuff we make up. The uppercase is the stuff that God actually sends. And if we believe that either the works of humans or the commands of God save us and get us to heaven and earn God's love, we're legalists. That's true. That would be our problem. Those would be legal. And so we want to make sure we're aware of all that, we steer clear of all of that, because again, we don't want to be legalists. That's true. But let me tell you what legalism is not. Right? This is not what legalism is. First of all, you ready? Follow Legalism is not just obeying the Bible. Right? You are not a legalist if you obey this book. Believe it or not. And, and sometimes that's the way it almost gets pitched. You know what I mean? Like, so, uh, matter of fact, recently we were dealing with an individual who we just haven't seen a church for a long time, and we keep kind of getting a hold of them, hey, we miss you, we miss you, we miss you, so finally he said, you know, I'm getting sick and tired of this legalism that says I have to be a church. We're like, uh, no, that's just in here, bro. That's not, that, that's not legalism. That's just what Jesus said. You know what I mean? And, and so that's that thing where sometimes when people call legalism, we're saying, no, that's just biblical obedience. There's nothing legalistic about saying we obey the Bible. There's nothing legalistic about expecting one another to obey the Bible at all. In fact, the best way to avoid the accusation of hypocrisy is to what? Obey the Bible. Right? So, obedience to the Bible, not legalism. That's standard fare. It's just standard fare. What did Jesus say? Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All that was there. But what else did he say? Teaching them to obey all that I command them. That's not legalism. That's just obedience. So, obeying the Bible is not legalism. Second, accountability, accountability among believers. That is not legalism. Right? So if somebody comes to me and says, Matt, man, I love you. I'm there for you, bro. I'm coming alongside you. There's this thing I see in your life that, you know, God says this right here, and I'm just I'm concerned that it's getting ahead of you or getting a hold of you or whatever else. I can't say, like, dude, you're a legalist. Back off. Like if they get rooted in an address in the book, they're good. Now, hopefully, they don't get a legalistic attitude, which is judgmental and condescending and all that. They have a calm, gracious, loving attitude, but they're saying, man, I see this, and I want to help. Right? So if you're someplace, and your friend comes to you and says, Dude, I think you drank too much. <laughs> and they're all wobbly, but they're the sober one, it's you. Alright, so, um, <laughs> and you can't be like, you and me, bro. Alright, you can't. They're just loving you. Alright? It's you. You're wrong. That's wrong. They love you, they say. So, that's not legal. Right? It's not legal. That's them showing you love and grace. And then, third, what legalism is not, what biblical works are, is works flowing from gratitude. Because of God's love and grace. See, what we're really talking about is not a version of checklists, not a version of standards and rules that are callously followed to the letter of the law because that's right. What we're talking about is a gratitude. A gratitude, a love, an affection for what God has done. This is, you know what, I don't want to be on the extreme of works, and I don't want to be on the extreme of grace. I want to be right here in the middle where grace works. Where grace works. See, God's all about the center. I mean, God is the center of everything. And so what he desires of us, what he wants for us to do, is to see works in grace in a relationship. Right? Where it's not legalism, and it's not licentiousness, it's not rule-keeping, and it's not rule-breaking to celebrate the forgiveness of God. It's, no, 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 no. It's right here where God is, in the center. Right? Because this is what the New Testament advocates. I'm going to take you really quick to kind of a quick pattern of the New Testament so you can kind of understand the picture. We're saying it, now I'm going to say it in a rapid-fire way. And so I want you to understand how this plays, what the center looks like, the relationship between these two, and how it plays to the center. Here's the first thing you need to understand about how grace 
works. First thing you got to know, works don't save. Right? So when we're thinking about the relationship between the two, what we're realizing is that this is vitally important, but not to get you to heaven. Right? This is our problem. We always go, well, if it's not this, it's got to be this. Is it grace? Is it works? And I go, yes. Right? So, um, this doesn't get you to heaven. But this does show you two things. First of all, it shows you your need for grace, because you'll never be able to do this. And second, it will show you what you do after grace is touched your life. So, Paul says, works don't save. He says in Galatians 3, verse 10, that those who depend on the law to make it right with God are under his curse. The scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. If I said, I'm going to work my way to heaven, he says, great, all you're doing is digging a hole of cursing. So works don't save. Never have, never will, never can, but save people by grace, they work. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God and not the result of works so that no one may boast. Right? So, I'm not saved by this. The law says I'm sinful. I need this. Grace saves me. But then what does it say in verse 10? I am saved through good works. Right? So works don't save. Grace saves me. Grace saves me. Works. Good works. Not bad works, legalistic works, real good, godly works. Why? Because God works in saving people. So that it's God who's working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases Him. See, here's the thing about God's definition of grace. It doesn't merely forgive. It empowers, it stimulates, it inspires us to live a life that is completely sold out. That is the intention of grace. It's to make us new people, right? A total transformation, not just a confession, but a complete transformation of the person. That's what the grace of God does in our lives. That's why he introduces it. He says, I want you to be a new person. We're not just slapping space on you and calling you new. You're new, right? It's not just a Botox job with Jesus and you're kind of You're new. And so, works don't save you. Grace saves you. Grace saves you. Works and why? Because God works in you, right? And that's the message. And not just works in you to fulfill some requirements, but to make you zealous for those things. Titus two eleven says, "For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce the godliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age." Right as we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our glory. And glorious God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right? It isn't like we go, man, the grace of God has saved me. Now I'm here in the middle making the donuts for Jesus. <laughs> that's not it. If, if, if we feel like that's it, it's because we haven't really found something. Right? So maybe it's like, okay, that's, it's not works, it is grace, it's not grace, but maybe we rotate a little too far back this direction. So I'm like, well, I just do what he says or I'll be in trouble. You know, like, I get it, but he says, no, I want you to be more center, because I, I do. I do all the center. I want you to be more in this place than I am. Right? That's where he wants us. So it's faith and works and grace all in tandem. In fact, the brother of Jesus said it this way in James. He says, now some may argue. Some people have faith. Others have good deeds. He says, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith fine by good deeds. You say you have faith or you believe that there is one God. Good for you. He says, even the demons believe this and they tremble into it. How foolish can you see that faith without good deeds is useless? James here, Jesus' brother, means he knows a thing or two. Um, he knows exactly what he's saying. He's not saying, he's not saying, see, it really works that saves you, not grace. What he's saying is true grace, it truly saves you. You work, but you don't become some working legalist. Again, you're right in the middle. Where you're supposed to be faith and work and grace coming together in tandem the way God designed. So it's not a checklist. 
does is take my sink skin. Oh, okay, so Matt, now your sink is back over here. We just got to work. I got it. We had our fun in the gray sun over there for the long time. We're back over here. Got it. Emergent period is over. We're back over here to evangelicalism. All right. So, like, like not saying that. Because it was never a checklist to begin with. It was always a relationship. Jesus does not change people by issuing commands. He changes people by showing them relationships. Right? So he enters into a relationship with us in the center and says, I want to do it for you. And I don't want us to believe Satan's lie that says we just got to grab the bootstrap and pull him tight and do what good Christians do. He wants us to come back to that. And that's not what Jesus offers at all. The difference is that, like, I, I, I say to my wife, you know what, honey? You've been married for 23 years. 23 years. And I have been completely faithful to you for 23 years because on June 9th, 1990, I promised fidelity. Now, you might go, that's awesome. And you kept your word that whole time. But you know what Ellen would rather hear? Not just, I didn't because the rule said. What she wants to hear is, I didn't because why would I want to anyway? Right? Jesus doesn't want us over here saying, I do what the rule says. He wants us right over here words, and why would I want to See, the enemy wants to again, make it rules, make it legalism, make it checklists. He just doesn't want us in the center. He doesn't care if we're here, right? Because it's, it's an extreme. Or he doesn't care if we're here, because it's an extreme. Just don't be there. That's a game changer. He doesn't want the game changer. And so what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? Well, here's my encouragement. If we start getting this, right? We start really getting life in the center. It changes your life. It changes your life for a number of reasons. First of all, because life in the center, where you're really reliant on God, you know what? God shows up to that. Right? There's a presence of God who's found in a love for what He says, in a love for what He expects. When you do it because you love what He's done, again, it's gratitude. It's not just Early works obedience in his gratitude. Man, God's presence is there. Another thing that's true, not only presence, there is power there. Jesus says, man, I am the vine, you are the branch apart from me. You can do nothing but couple to me. You can do everything. In that context, he says, when you obey me in love. There is presence. There is power. When those two things converge, there is passion. Some of us go, man, I am not passionate about my Christian life. I'm passionate about seeing I'm passionate about Breaking Bad's ending. i got to watch it. Yeah. I'm passionate. I'm passionate about politics. I'm passionate about the military. I'm passionate about my country. I'm passionate about my friends. I'm passionate about whatever. Lots of passions. People go, man, when it comes to Jesus, I'm not that passionate. I say it's because we're not dwelling in the presence and we're not sensing the power. And from that, we don't have the right perspective. And so Jesus says, man, get back to the presence. Get back to the power. Get back to the perspective. Get back to these things that build passion in your life to be in the center Finding grace that works together. That's the deep abundant life because the truth is this a holy centered life is a holy centered life. A holy centered life is a holy centered life. That call of holiness is not a bad thing. You're like, ooh, holy roller again. Holy is good. Holy is right. Holy is what we're meant for. Holy is uncommon, right? It's not, hey, I'm just like you, only Christian. It's the reason I'm nothing like you at times is because I'm Christian. Not in a judgmental way. You should never be judgmental. It's never condescending. The reason you would love your enemies when the world doesn't is because you're supposed to be holy. The reason you don't have finances make your life safe is because you're supposed to be holy. The reason you don't fret about tomorrow is you know that God already has your tomorrow in His hands. That's why you're to be holy. Uncommon, different in the world. It doesn't mean you should be arrogant. The world does arrogance. It's not supposed to be proud. The world is pride. The reason we wash each other's feet is because we're holy. The reason we want to care for the least of these is because we are to be holy. So, understand, holiness isn't legalism. It's life, freedom, beauty, courage, and peace of home. That's where it is. Holiness is an option. It's commandment. Right? Teaching them to obey all by command. It's not optional. But also understand that holiness, it's not laws. 
That's what Satan wants to say. Oh man, if you really live a holy life, you're going to ostracize the unbelievers, you're going to miss out on things. No, it's not loss. That's his lie. Works aren't legalism, holiness is not loss. It's the gain of everything. Why? Because if you search through the New Testament, here's what you're going to see, right? Our design is about holiness. Our destiny is about the holy city of God. Our status is a holy standing. Our commission is a holy calling. Our book is the holy scriptures. Our promise is a holy covenant. Our very title is holy beloved, holy nation, holy priesthood. Our creed is a holy faith. Our worship is a holy sacrifice. Our body is a holy temple. Our greeting is a holy kiss. Our seal is the holy spirit. Our Lord is the holy one. Our God is the holy father. And Peter says God is holy, holy, holy. So be holy like the Holiness isn't terribly human. Right? It's not. Right? You want to grow a big church? It's tough to advocate holiness a lot for a big church. It just is. But the Bible is filled with the call of holiness. Instead of saying, so instead of saying, oh, it works for legalism, you need to go, oh, it works for my opportunity to let God know how much I love him. Not works that people impose, but works that God inspires and calls us to. Let's go and pray together. Jesus, I pray that you would learn. I pray that I would learn. Sometimes I love to ride the edge of not being terribly holy because I get last time to get people's attention that I'm not one of those elite not evangelicals. And Jesus, I know that there is an open rotation everything, that there's dwelling in the center where you were, where the most broken, messed up, sinful people love being around you. Uh, the religious people couldn't stand you, and that was pure holiness. At the same time, I pray that we don't try to over-rotate the way that we find you in the center of what we in humility, grace, peace, love, and joy. No, we don't have all the answers, but you are the answer for everything. Help us. Help us to be holy in your name.